And as we prepare to get into God's Word, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Again, for that we celebrate today a day where we remember those that, that give their life for this nation and for our freedom. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your Word, we are reminded, of course, that you did more than that. You gave your Son life for us. And Father, that's the ultimate evidence of your love. And Father, we're about learning how much you love us and asking you today, by the precious Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and you would anoint them and deposit them in our hearts that we would have today, leave here today with not just more mental understanding, but with a greater heart appreciation, with a revelation of the love that you have for us. For it changes us and we desperately need that revelation and those that have had that revelation we need a deeper revelation because your word says that the, that the love of Christ is, is, that the riches that are in Christ are unfathomable. There's no bottom to it. There's no limit to them. And so, Father, we want to dig deep. We want to draw deep from the well of that love this morning, of the anointing of your spirit. And we trust the spirit of God to do that in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, I trust that this is blessing you, that this is having an impact on you, because it sure is having an impact on me. What we've been talking about, as the graphic clearly indicates, is that God loves you. And we've looked in the most famous verse in the, in the Bible, which is John 3.16, which says that God, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We talked about that little word, so, is what changes that verse from a fact, that God loves the world. To, to telling us that it's a measure of how much God loves us. That God loves us and the proof of how much God loves us is He gave His only begotten Son so that who would, whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we're talking about how much God loves us. And, and, and we could talk about how much God loves the church. We could talk about how much God loves the world. But we're looking at how much God loves you. It's got to be personal to you. I was raised in church. I was a deacon in the church that where, where after we were married, where we lived uh, outside of Boston when I was a lawyer. I was a deacon in that church. I had even preached a sermon. I don't, would never want to hear that sermon again. It was so dead. Because I was dead inside. I didn't know Christ. I knew the Bible. I knew who God was. I knew who Jesus was. I knew He was the Son of God. I knew God loved us. I knew the fact but I never let him into my life. I never experienced that for myself until one night about 37 years ago, almost 38 years ago, in my living room, I invited Christ into my heart. And I mean, I just, I was, I was still in my three-piece suit. And I was going to go to work as a lawyer in State Street in Boston the next morning because I left that office that afternoon. And, and, and I, when I went to work the next day, I felt like a teenager that had fallen in love. I, something had happened in me. I had no idea what happened in me. Every lamppost looked beautiful. The big heavy guy that served me coffee, all the lawyers in the office looked beautiful. You know that was God. And so something happened inside of me, and I never understood it. Then I now know what happened is Christ came to dwell in me, and His love for me came resident inside. And I the only thing I'd ever experienced anything like that was when I met this young lady over here and fell in love with her. It, it was the only thing close to that that I'd ever experienced. And I was like a teenager in love because the, his, and this is what we've got to get back to. This is what Jesus spoke to one of the churches in the book of Revelation. He said, you've done, you've done a great job, FCC. You've got things organized. Your, your doctrine's great. You're keeping that, the devil out. Or you're doing all these things. But this one thing he said I have against you is you've left your first love. You've forgotten why you're doing this. It's out of love for me and my love for you. 
So that's what we've been looking at, to come back to that, and we've begun to see it's a foundation for everything because if we're not experiencing, if we're not walking in the revelation of that God loves me and cares about me, it, it, it makes everything else we do hard work for Him. And we've looked at things like we're commanded to love one another. And we've looked at the, at the principle in the Bible that we, as, as you receive, that's what you give. You can't give something you haven't received. And so when we read about we're commanded to love one another, and there's some people that are easy to love, and there are some people that aren't so easy to love. And in fact, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And yes, how can I do that? Because in my natural love, I, we can't do that. So we're trying to give something we haven't fully received. And we've looked at that. We've looked at, um, uh, so the commandment to love one another. We've looked at how the revelation of God's love affects our faith. Galatians 5, 6 is faith works by love. Because the love of God helps us to learn to trust Him. And faith is simply learning to trust God. And the more you know He loves you, the easier it is to trust Him and believe He's going to take care of you. Then we looked at um, a prayer. And prayer and faith go very much hand in hand. And prayer is, is communicating with somebody you can't see. And if you don't know He loves you, you're not going to have confidence He's going to listen to you. Why, I mean, why would God listen to me? I mean, that's the question in the back of We may not speak it in church, but in the question in the back of our mind, why would God listen to me? Is He, listen, is he there? You ever have one of those days? Are, hello, are you there? And, and you, if you read through the Psalms, you see King David has some of those days also. And, 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 but, but faith is believing that there's the one you're talking to is really there and listening. That's why Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For in order to come to God, you must believe two things. You must believe that He exists, He's really there, and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Literally in the Greek it means He's a rewarder of those who seek Him out. And so you have to believe He's there, and why would I seek Him out if He's not going to answer me? And then we looked at obedience, and, and obedience is, is literally, we sang a song this morning about uh, surrendering to Him. And as we were singing that, I'm thinking, it, you're not going to surrender to somebody that you don't trust. Paul talks about, and Pastor Kurt quoted it when he was up here doing the transition, he says, I know in whom I believed, and what I've trusted to Him, I know He is taking care of me. And so Paul could go through the things he went through because he knew that he had trusted his life. He trusted his soul. He trusted his destiny. He trusted everything to God because he learned he could trust Him because he learned how much God loves him. And we'll look at that uh, in another couple of weeks. So we've looked at those things, and then we began to get into this verse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. And verse 16 we saw earlier. We saw uh, verse 16 says... Um, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. Now, we're, at, we're now in 1 John chapter 4. We've known and believed the love that God has for us. And we've talked about the fact that you can believe He loves you and not know He loves you. And so we're learning to grow not just that we believe He loves us, but that we know by experience that He loves us. And that's what we've been talking about. Now verse 17, you can put it up there. Love has been perfected in this among us, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear, there is no fear, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The word perfect means completed or matured love. When the full revelation of God's love for you dawns on you, it casts 
without fear. Because fear involves torment. Fear involves um, torment. And he who fears has not been made perfect or complete in love. Go back to, ver- go back to verse... Uh, oh, no, stay here. So what we've been looking at, we're looking at symptoms or signs that maybe I don't yet really have that revelation. So if I'm having trouble loving people, then it's because I don't have that revelation yet. If I'm having trouble walking in faith, maybe it's because I don't yet have that revelation. If I'm having trouble obeying God or having trouble in prayer, maybe it's because I don't yet have that revelation. And then we began to look last week at one of the heaviest ones here, is if I, if I have fear in my life, that definitely means I've not yet seen the revelation of God's love for me. Remember, you can believe God loves you and not know God loves you. You can believe with your mind. You can fully convinced. You can maybe know more scriptures about this than I know. And that's wonderful. That's good. But what we're understanding is that's not enough. The Bible says not only can you believe that God loves you, but you can come to a living knowledge that God loves you, an experience of God's love for you. And we're going to learn how to get to that place. But it begins by realizing, I need that. And there's no, God's not condemning any of us. He's trying to help us by open doors inside of us because God wants to pour out into you, or actually He has poured out into you. He wants to open the doors of your heart so you can begin to experience and walk in His blessings. And many of the times we're not walking in them because we're holding back because we don't know whether we can trust Him. We don't know whether He'll really be there. And it all comes because we don't really know and understand We don't really know by experience that God really, really loves me. And we've looked at the fact that goes on and says in the other verse we're looking at that God is love. He's not full of love. He does not one of his characteristics. It's his nature, which means God cannot help but love. It is his nature. If God stopped loving, if God did not love you, he would cease to be God. And since he's not, and, and then we'd be in bigger trouble. But God is who He is. He's been who He is through all the ages. He will always be who He is. And who He is, is love. So what this verse is telling us, you can put it back up there. What this verse is telling us is that, that there is no fear in love. So we began to look at some fears last time. We ran out of time. But we began to look, the first fear we looked at is the fear of man. And this can be a little tricky to recognize that, that, that I may be dealing with this. The fear of man is basically a a need for people's approval. And there's nothing wrong with people, you know, wanting people to like us, but it's when we need it. When my my security and my well-being and my sense of peace is dependent on whether people accept me and love me or like me, then I have put my destiny and my well-being in the hands of man, and that's not a safe place to put it. Proverbs 29, I think it's verse 25, says the fear of man is a snare. And it's one of Satan's number one snares to hold you. He couldn't keep you from getting saved. So we know he doesn't have any power over you because if there's anything he would have prevented, it would be you coming to Christ. But now that he couldn't prevent that, what he's trying to do desperately is to limit your walking in the fullness of what Christ paid for for you so that it blesses you, but also you now become a witness. Paul calls us a living epistle, a letter written and read by all men. He says, because when, when, the, when, the, when the blessing of God, when the, when the grace of God begins to flow out of your life, it affects people around you because we're living. That's why he talks about we're light to the world. 
And the, the more the world gets darker, the more the light begins to shine. And you don't even realize sometimes how you're shining. I think it was Wednesday night I shared that I had an appointment with one of my doctors. And he was talking about the team of doctors that is working with me. And this was my main doctor. And he said, you know, they really like you. And it's like I realized, well, I, you know, I didn't meet with them for long. And then I realized what they've come in touch with is the life of God in me. It's not my dynamic personality. It surely isn't my good looks. It's because it wasn't a long conversation. But there's something about me that caught their attention. Because they're working with people dealing with death all the time. And they saw something in me, not me, my personality, of the one that lives in me shining out of me and that's what this is why Satan opposes this so much so one of his major weapons to keep because he wants to keep a leash on you he couldn't keep you from being saved but he wants to keep a leash on you and this is what began to open me up to this in my own life because I realized a year ago there were areas of my life that Satan had caught cordoned off where, where, and if he had control of those areas of my life then God didn't and there were certain fears, and this was one of them, the fear of man. Now, I'd grown a lot, because when I was younger, and when I was a pastor before, that's one of the reasons I needed to get out, because I was so insecure. I could have had the anointing of God dripping off of me up here, and when I came down, and people lined up to say, Pastor, what a great message. If the last person say, eh, it was okay, it ruined my day. Because I was dependent on man's approval. And what this teaches us is the way out of that is God's love for us, is to find out that God loves you. We learned last week that man was made to need approval. So if you're saying, well, I'm going to get over this because I'm just going to harden myself, I don't need the approval of man, then what you'll do is harden your heart. But when you do that, you harden it to God also. But we discovered that God will approve of you. We saw that in, in John chapter 12, we're not going to turn there, in John chapter 12, Jesus made the, John makes this amazing statement. Out of the Pharisees, out of the religious leaders, there were many that believed on Christ, that He was the Messiah, but they wouldn't confess Him outwardly. Why? Because they were afraid they'd be kicked out of the synagogue because they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. That tells us that God will praise us. And what we've done is we, we, get, we try to have this inner need met by man instead of by God because we don't know that God will praise us because we don't know that God loves us. We may know it up here, but we, we're not open. God would praise me? Why would God praise me? I've got, I've got weaknesses in my life because not, God's not going to praise you because of your personality and character. It's because of who He's put in you. You're His child. Your child. We talked about, you know, that when, when our, our daughter began to walk, you know, and she was not the most graceful thing the first time she walked, just as neither of you, none of you were either. And she stumbled and she had to get her equilibrium. But boy, we were praising her and encouraging her. And you don't realize how much God wants to encourage you in your steps of faith as you begin to step out and trust Him and begin to say, God, I need to grow in this area. God will encourage you if you'll be sensitive and you'll listen. And then we looked over in Zephaniah 3.17 where it says God dances and celebrates over you. We ended up by looking at John, at, at, in Luke, I think it's 15, where it says all of heaven rejoices over one sinner that comes to the Lord. And then Jesus taught this parable that's so beloved, the parable of the prodigal son. It was all about the father rejoicing 
over his son coming home out of a pigsty, filthy, dirty, smelling, and the father threw a party over this son that was just because he was lost, and now he's found. God looks down on you and loves you, and God will praise your steps. But see, we don't listen for that. So we're trying to get it met by man. And we looked at that last time. Now we're going to look at... Then we looked at a fear of failure. And it's related to that. And that's what keeps us from stepping out. A fear of failure. And the fear of failure is that if I fail, what's that going to mean? That means something about me. That means if I fail, people are going to look at me and think I'm a failure. And we ended by saying there's a difference between being a failure and failing. Everyone that's ever succeeded at anything great failed on the way. And if you're afraid to fail, you'll never accomplish anything. In fact, the only way to be a certain failure is to not try. Because I ended with a statement. There's a de- to, to be a failure is a destination. To fail is an event. It's just a bump in the road on the way. When I was growing up, there was somebody, one of my classmates' father had made like three or four fortunes in their life and lost them. But you see, he had confidence that he, if he did it once, he can do it again. It's like the story about um, uh, uh, Walt Disney. You've heard of him, haven't you? Well, he poured his life into creating this cartoon character named Oswald the Rabbit. And he had some investors who invested in it. And it's a long story, but they stole it from him. And he hadn't, I guess, copyrighted it. They stole it from him. And he's on his way back from this meeting in New York, and he's, he's depressed. His life is over. They've stolen it from him. And if I recall correctly, it was his wife that reminded him, wait a minute, they didn't create him. It came out of you. If you can create one character, you can create another. So he went in his garage, opened his drawing board, and he drew a little mouse. I think you've heard of him. He could have quit. And there are many stories like that. He could have quit and given up. But that failure was actually what really made him dedicated to do what he did. And so God will use your failures to teach you something. So if you never fail, it's going to be hard for God to teach you some things. So God's not afraid for you to fail. In fact, failing, if you can picture it this way, it's like a little child learning to walk and they fall. And the parent doesn't beat them up. They encourage him. You know what? Look how far you made it. That's a nice fall, you know? And so when you slip and you make a mistake in trying something, God's there encouraging you, saying, all right, son, you blew it. That's fine. I love you. See, God's love for us isn't based on whether we succeed or fail. So when you know God loves you, whether you succeed or fail, you're free to step out and try something so that you, and if you fail, God's going to be there to catch you and pick you up and help you. I want want to add some things to what we talked about. Colossians 2 verse 10. little scripture tucked in there. I'm seeing more and more how the answer to so many of these things is learning who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. When you get saved, the Bible, and I can't, I've got to be careful here because we'll get, I'll get on a sidetrack and it's a good one, but we'll do this a little later on. When, you've, when you received Christ, you, you got more than forgiveness of your sins. 
Literally, the kingdom of God came to live inside of you. God put a brand new spirit in you, born of Him, and He put His own spirit in you. So literally, you're joined to Christ. Paul talks in Romans 1 point. He says, you are, excuse me, 1 Corinthians, you are one spirit with Him. So you're a new creature in Christ. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the new creature in Christ is joined to Christ. You're one with Him. This is why Hebrews chapter 2 says that Christ is not ashamed to be called your brother. Now listen to that. Christ is not ashamed to be called your brother. We'll show it to you a little later on. Christ is not ashamed to be called your brother or sister. Well, he's your brother. He's not ashamed to be a joint heir with you. He's not ashamed of you. Some of you, that really needs to sit in, sink in. Christ is not ashamed of you. Think of what He's done. He's literally come to live inside of you through the Spirit of God. The Bible says your body is a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who you have from God. God's not ashamed of you. I said, God's not ashamed of you. God's not ashamed of you. He's come to live inside of you. You've been, you've been raised up, it says in Ephesians 2, to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. Say, yeah, but I'm sitting here in a blue chair. Yeah, but the real you inside is connected to the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father. You're one with Him. Oh, I can't get off on that. I'll get sidetracked here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. For you are complete in Him. Say this with me. I am complete in Him. You are complete in Him. So how can you be a failure? For in order for you to be a failure, He has to be a failure. When we were married almost 49 years ago, we became one. That means whatever happens to her happens to me. And, and when you've been married long enough, you can feel it. You can feel it. I can feel whether she's up or down. She can feel whether, what, you know, we, you, can, you can sense each other because you've won. And, and, and that's, that's a physical oneness. That's an emotional oneness. But the Bible says we're one spirit with Him. One spirit with Him. One spirit with Him. So for you to be a failure, He has to be a failure. But God looks at you as complete in Him. That's your spirit, man. Your soul still needs some work. But you're not your soul. You're not your soul. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. The real you is the spirit being on the inside of you. That's your inner nature. That's what Paul refers to as the inner man. And that inner man, or woman, is complete in Christ. And that's who you really are. That's the part of you that qualifies you to get in heaven. Okay. Grace is God's love poured out on us, and He loves us no matter what. Grace is God's love poured out on us. And in fact, in, in Ephesians 1, it says, lavished upon us. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 9. 
There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, that's God's rest, has himself also seeked from his works as God did. So if you're striving, if you always feel as if you're falling short, which is what happens when we're a, we have this sense of failure. See, there, there are many Christians that just walk around with this self-image of failure. I'm a failure looking for somewhere to happen. You may not consciously think of that, but that becomes our inner attitude. So, you know, if we fail, where well, I do it, I did it again. Or it robs us of our, our confidence to step out because I'm afraid of failing. And what you need to see is that God, what God's will is for you is to enter into a rest. A rest, it defines as not, not doing anything. It's not, you know, sitting on your couch at home with your feet propped up, each eating a bag of Doritos and watching, the, you know, some movie or something. <clears throat> rest is an inner rest. It's peace. It's to cease from my striving. Always got to catch up. I'm always behind. I'm always falling short. And that wears you down. And when I'm striving to measure up, that's because I don't realize that I'm already complete in Him. There's a rest to enter into. And the devil loves to keep us on this treadmill because we think the way out is to go faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, 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 faster. And the faster you go, the harder it is to hear God. The harder it is to sense Him working on the inside of you. That's why the scriptures tell us to be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. But it's hard to be still if you always feel like you're behind and you're not catching up or measuring up. And so there's a rest God wants us to enter into. That doesn't mean we don't do things for Him. It doesn't mean we're not busy for Him. It doesn't mean we're not committed to Him. But there's an inner rest, an inner peace that we have to have that we're called to have. And it says, goes on in verse 11, it says, be diligent to enter into that rest. Let's go now to verse 14. Oh, some of my favorite scriptures here. And this is how we can rest. We're talking about the fear of failure and, and measuring up. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Stop there a second. So everything he's going to say here is based on something, seeing something. So there's something that's important for us to see, not with these two eyes, but with these inner eyes. It is that we have a great high priest, and it's Jesus Christ. A high priest, a priest was somebody in the Old Testament that represented you to God and God to you. They bridged a gap because they, were not, they, they could not commune with God, so God would commune through the priest, and He would be a connection between the people and with God. The qualifications are set forth in, in, uh, in um, Hebrews, I think it's five. Uh, and so, but the high priest was the one that did this. The, he was the real representative of God on behalf of the people. And the Old Testament high priest, in order to come into the presence of God, which he did one day a year on the high day, he had to perform all the normal rituals, and then he had to perform some other rituals, wear certain garments, and then only then could he come behind the veil into the inner place, the Holy of Holies, where the, where the, where the, um, the Ark of the Covenant was, and there he would pour the blood out, the blood of the sacrifice out on that, to atone for the Israel's sins for that whole year. And of course, then they'd start over when he came out again. 
And so, but Hebrews is talking about we have a greater high priest. We have a true high priest who is not going into the holy of holies in a tent made on earth, but who has entered into the presence of the living God on our behalf to represent us in His presence. And the blood He poured out, not on the Ark of the Covenant, the blood He poured out on the altar of God, His own blood He poured it out. So we have such a great high priest and because we have such a great high priest who is representing us there, and Romans talks about, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for you, interceding for your weaknesses, your mistakes, your stumbling, your failures. You have a high priest seated at the right end of God, and he's got his blood on his hands as the pr- payment for your mistakes. That's what he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. That's a double negative. So let's put it this way. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. The word sympathize there means to identify with. To identify with. Why? Because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet the difference is he didn't sin. So Jesus can identify with your struggles, your temptations. He can identify with dealing with weaknesses in your life. Not that he had weaknesses, but he had temptations. You understand, when he came to earth, God, the Son of God laid aside all of his glory, all of his divine attributes, and took on flesh, John 1.14, and, and walked among us. So God, for the first time in all of existence, knew what it was like to be tired because God doesn't understand what it's like to be tired because He's absolute life, God the Father. He doesn't understand what it's like to be tempted because temptation has to come through this physical flesh. He doesn't wear this kind of physical flesh, so He can't be tempted. So God, one of the reasons He took on flesh is so He could identify with your struggles and my struggles so that He could be a a, a sensitive and a compassionate priest representing us to the Father. So He was tempted in all ways as we are. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. He can feel along with you. He knows what it's like to be be dealing with discouragement. Not that He was, but He had to deal with it. And if you look at his staff, he had some discouragement to deal with. Some of, you know, we think God, Jesus was just so sweet, soft. I mean, there are times he says, you idiots, you knuckle. That's a modern translation. <laughs> How long do I have to put up with you? His own staff he was talking to. Don't you get it? I mean, at the very end, I've got to be careful, I don't want to go off on this. At the very end, he's been crucified, raised from the dead. He's walked among them for almost 50 days, and he's about to be ascended, and he has to still rebuke his own disciples' unbelief because of the hardness of their heart. He says, you didn't believe the men that told you I'd been raised from the dead. I've been telling you for year, three years I was going to do this, and you didn't believe me. He's frustrated with them. Gives us hope, doesn't it? Yet without sin, verse 16. As a result of this, because he's a high priest, represents us before God, because he understands what our weakness is and he's sympathetic to them, he's tender to them, we can now therefore come boldly. That word boldly in the Greek means openly. It means to say anything you want. It means I don't have to couch my phrases, I don't have to say everything. 
thou God, who rules the heavens and the earth, Almighty God that thou art, we've come this day into thine presence. Now, if you want to talk King James to him, I'm sure he'll talk King James back to you. But that's not what boldly means. Boldly means, if you want to know what it's like, look at what King David did in the Psalms. He just poured his heart out. God, this is where I... Because God knows. You're not going to tell God something. He's going to be shocked. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. They're thinking that. Oh, what are we going to do? No, He wants you to be real with Him. Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, they had no concept of a throne of grace. It's the throne of judgment. It was the throne of judgment. It was the throne of judgment. Under the law, if you sin, you died. That simple. And it just took one. If you sin, you died. Now, they provided a method of atoning, of covering it over, but you were always conscious of the guilt. We don't have time to get into this either. Because in, in, in Romans, in Hebrews 10, 9 and 10, it talks about this. They had a sin consciousness. Because every day there were sacrifices made for their sins. But because of this, he's made a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. Because it's not the blood of bulls and goats. But the blood of his only begotten son, that we don't have to make that sacrifice year by year. Because once it was done, it was done. Once and for all. So Christians are not to walk around with a sin consciousness, with a guilty conscience. Now, if you've done something wrong, your conscience should prick you. But there's a real easy solution to that. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness so you can be back and not have a guilty conscience. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you fail, the places you go to the throne of grace and get mercy and help in time of need. That's not the pla- that verse is not telling us when we've done everything right. That's when you failed at something. So the point here is we don't have to fear failure because God doesn't stop loving us just because you failed. He'll pick you up. Okay. Oh, Lord, we're getting behind. Okay, now, I want to deal with the one, the, the last one we're going to deal with. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. This is the root of all fears. The fear of death. The thing we don't like to think about or talk about. Verse 14. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, his death, he might destroy him, that's the devil, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid or help to the seed of Abraham. Verse 15 and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Remember, this is talking about being free. And fear is what holds us in bondage. And the root of all bondage, this verse tells us, is the fear of death. Is the fear of death. So Jesus came to destroy the fear of death. The power of the fear of death over us. Because He understood that the fear of death is the root of every other kind of bondage. 
And the, God wants his children free. In John, I think it's chapter 6, whom the Son sets free should be free indeed. That means experiencing and enjoying freedom in every area of our life. And fear is the number one weapon to keep the children of God from being free and enjoying their walk with Him. doesn't mean everything's easy. There are trials. There are difficulties we go through. But we should be free in the midst of it. Free in the midst of it. So this is what we're going to look at. This is the last fear we're going to look at. Now, I want you everybody to look at me. Because I have a word from God for every one of you this morning. We're talking about the fear of death. Hold on. You ready? This is going to be a shock, but I'll help you with it. Everyone in this room is going to die. Look to your right. Somebody don't know where your right is. <clears throat> Look to your left. They're all going to die. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. We don't, and if you're, if you're a life insurance salesman, you know what I'm talking about. Because you've got to get people to buy something that they're not going to get the benefit out of. And, and, and they don't want to talk about what's going to occasion this great money coming. Oh, your family's going to... Yeah, but I've got to die for that to happen. You're going to die. So we need to get over it. We need to face it. And what I heard was Bob Gass a number of years ago in this pulpit says, you know, pastors need to teach their people how to die. Oh, that went over big. <laughs> See, there's a perfect example of what this scripture talks about who through the fear of death were in bondage. If, if we're not excited that we're going to die someday, we're in bondage. We're trying to hold on to this life desperately, desperately because it's the only hope we have. And my goodness, what happens after this? Oh, I go into the great unknown. Well, it's not an unknown. The apostles, all of them, except maybe John, well, John, were executed for their faith. Paul was ex... Peter, they crucified Peter, and he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up like my Savior, so crucify me upside down. You've got to be nuts to say that. I mean, that's just not right there. No, that's not it. He had a revelation of something that the church lacks today. He had a revelation of something that the church... Paul writes in prison at the end of his... in his second imprisonment, near the end of his life. It's full of joy. It's full... I'm getting ahead. John, John, I'm getting off track here, John. Come on, John. Okay. All right. So we're going to die. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It's appointed for everyone. You have an appointment. You don't know when, unless Christ comes back first, but then it's going to change anyway. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to be driving the car around that you've, you know, you love so much, or you're not going to be in your boat, or you're not going to be in your house, or all the things that we spend so much of our time and energy and money on, it's going to stay here, one way or the other. You're leaving it all behind. The old expression, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. 
gee, I wonder how much they left. All of it. <laughs> now let's go back to 1 John chapter 4. Because here's the answer. Here's where the fear of death is rooted. Verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear involves torment. The torment is this. When I die, I'm going to get judged for what I did or didn't do. And because I know me, and you know you, we know we didn't do everything we were supposed to do, and we did some things, in many cases, many things, that we would not like published because we don't want to be judged for those things. So there's fear, and that fear has torment. Torment is something that grips you, and it works on you whether you're asleep or awake. You wake up in the night, and that fear just jumps back on you. But there's a fear that's a very low-lying, undercurrent under fear that's just under there all the time, and you may not even be conscious of it, but it's a general uneasiness you have. You can tell because you get sharp with people that you might not normally be sharp with. But fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made complete in love. So the way this torment, this fear of judgment is overcome is by knowing how much God loves you. Go back to verse 17. Love has been perfected among us, us in this. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Instead of fear, love working in us gives us boldness in the day of judgment. I'm going to say that again. The devil wants you afraid of that day, and God wants you to have boldness or confidence in that day. And how can we have boldness in that day, in the day of judgment? Look at the next rest of that verse. Because as He is, so are we in this world. Look, same verse 17. As He is, so are we in this world. As He is, so are we in this world. As He is, so are we. We're talking about the fear of standing before God in judgment and God's answer is, because I've loved you, as He is, so are you in this world. Now let's go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, talking to Christians, abide in Him, stay rooted in Him, stay connected to Him, so that when He appears, aha, we may have confidence, not be afraid, not be in torment, but we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him, at His coming. How can we not be ashamed before Him at His coming? Go to chapter 3. Verse, next verse. If we know that He is right... No, no, go... I'm sorry. I misled you. If we know that He's righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Now the next verse. Behold. We're talking about this. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. So we're talking about how, do we, how are we going to have confidence and boldness before Him when He comes back. And here's the answer. 
Behold what manner, remember perfect love, knowing how much God loves you, being matured in the revelation of God's love for you will drive that fear out of that day of judgment. And here's why. Behold what manner of love the Father has. Now, in English, we just have past tense. But in Greek, there are three or four different types of past tense. There's a past tense that, in, that implies one specific event that happened and then it's over with. But then there's the past perfect which implies an event that happened once and lasts for eternity. And that's what that tense is. Behold what manner of love the Father has once and all forever bestowed upon us that we... And the word what manner of love... If you look that up in the Greek on some of the studies, it says what foreign type of love. It's not common to man. It's not a human type of love. What foreign type of love is this that God has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God? Now look at that. Therefore the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. Now, when you got saved, most likely your hair didn't change color your skin didn't change color. The facial expression may have changed. But there was a change that took place on the inside of you. And the world can't see that change until it begins to show up on the outside of you by the way you live your life and your attitude. But God, in the spirit realm, you could see that change immediately. You were transferred, Colossians 1.13 says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That we should be called children of God, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. It didn't recognize Him either, who He was. So they don't recognize who you are. Next verse, verse 2. Beloved, now. Everybody say, now. 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 That means right now, sitting in your blue seat on this day, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. Here's what this means. This means that we're going to be here. Let's suppose Jesus just comes back while we're here. We're standing here bumping along. He's going to come back. We're going to see Him in all His glory. And when we see Him in all His glory, we're going to look at Him and look at Him and look at me and go, Wow! I'm just like Him. That's what that verse says. You're going to see Him as He is and realize who you really are. Right now you've got to do it by faith in God's Word. But when you see Him, 1 Corinthians 13 says, there's a veil right now. But when He comes back and you see Him as He is, or you stand before Him in judgment, you're going to see, whoa, I'm just, I'm just as much a child of God as you are. We're going to see down the road, John 17 says, He loves you as much as He loves Jesus. Why? You're just as much a child as He is. You shall see Him as He is. That's why 1 John 4, 17 says, As He is, so are we in this world. And this verse says, when He comes back, you're going to say, Whoa, that was right. As He is, so are we in this world. Now, He's not talking about your body. He's not talking about your soul. Because you might be discouraged right now. He's not discouraged right now. But the real you on the inside... The real nature, who you really are, is exactly like Him because you're one with Him. You're joined with Him. So the confidence we have is that when we pass from this life into the next life, if, assuming Christ is in you, that all the veil is going to be taken off. Let's go look at something else here. 
Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And this is how we have to renew our minds. Death is the hope of all Christians, not the fear. It's called the blessed hope. The blessed hope. The blessed hope. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to spend a lot of time in here about this, but we're only going to look at one verse. Verse 19. Paul writes, talking about the resurrection. He says, If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we're of all men to be most pitiable. He's talking about some believe that there's no resurrection. He says, Well, there's no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. If Christ isn't raised, then we're still in our sins. He says, and, and, and the resur- being raised from the dead, th- that next life is our hope. And if we're living as Christians in this life, and we don't have a hope in the next life, our hope's not in the next life, we're of all men most pitiable, because we've given up all kinds of things. We may as well eat, drink, and be merry. Just have fun. If there's no afterlife. And so the hope that we're to have... The confidence we have. In fact, the ultimate purpose of faith is so we can live our life in this world with our eyes on that world. Oh, I can tell this is exciting. I can tell you guys are excited. That's because we haven't renewed our mind. Because we don't understand. We don't have a revelation of His love for us. What's awaiting us? What's awaiting us? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul deals with this issue over here. He ends chapter 4, because he didn't write it in chapter and verses, by saying, we don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. He talks earlier about things he's gone through, trials he's gone through. I mean, if you really want to know what a bad day is, read some of the things Paul went through. Jesus was scourged once. He was scourged, I think, three times. Several times he was left. He spent the night in the sea with other things that were floating around. He was misunderstood, he was jailed, and all, everything he got, he got for doing what he was called to do. And he talks at the end of this, he says, however, this momentary light affliction, the beatings, the imprisonments, the starving at times, this momentary Light affliction is earning for me an eternal weight of glory. See, what you're going through is relative. And maybe your relatives you're going through, but, but it's, you're, it's relative. What I mean by this, some of you right now are cold in here, and some of you may feel warm. Anybody feel cold? Okay, put your hand. Anybody feel warm? See? The temperature is the same but it's all relative to what's going on inside of your body. I've talked to you before about, you know, when we get a five-inch snowstorm in, in December or January, it's like, oh, here we go again. But you get one of those freak snowstorms in March, <laughs> no big deal, because it's going to pass. It's, we know, yeah, it's, fi- it's inconvenient, but it's, it's a momentary light affliction because April's coming, May's coming. So we can put up with that because our perspective is this is only temporary and short-lived. In December, we know there's things waiting us. That's what Paul's saying here. And here's his perspective. Because he said, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen, the spiritual things, are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made, house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this, he's talking about his physical body, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, which is his heavenly body. If indeed we have been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So you're not going to be without a body. So when this, you leave this precious one that you spend so much time and we spend so much time taking care of and feeding and dressing and you know, primping and all the things we do with it, don't get too much in love with it because you're leaving it here. And you won't be found naked. You will have a body in heaven. That's what he's saying here. Now he who, for we know that this tent we groan, being further clothed with mortality may be swallowed up by, by life. Notice he considers that life. This isn't life. This is just a temporary suit I'm in. For He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, verse 5, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For we always are confident knowing this, that while we're at home in the body, we're absent for the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, and we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now go with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll get a little exercise here. I'll tell you what it says here, because I, I want to shorten this down. He says here, I, I'm, he's in jail at this point. He says, for, for I know this is good. Go, go to the next verse, verse, verse 20. According to my earnest expectation, uh, he's talking about the, he's the, the imprisonment. He says, that whatever it is I'm going through, my perspective is I just want God magnified in this. How could he do that? Verse 21. For to me is live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live... Christ gets to do His work through me, but for me personally, to die is gain. So Paul's looking forward to it. Verse 22. But if I live in this flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. What I choose, I can't tell. I think as King James says, I'm caught betwixt the two. Verse 23. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. Verse 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul's, in, Paul's not writing this in his study somewhere on the Mediterranean overlooking his yacht and writing his next theological book. Paul's in prison. And the prisons then weren't like our prisons now. And Paul's writing this saying, as I look at where I am right now, I'm looking forward to that day when I'm going to die, when I'm going to leave this body. But I've taught because I realize to stay here is a value for you because Christ continues work in you. But personally, I'd like to be out of here. Now, I've had days like that, but I don't really mean it. <laughs> As listening to one teacher said, I was in the war in Vietnam and my attitude was, God, I just can't wait to die and be home with you. And, told, and one day I almost died twice. And I, was, I wasn't quite as anxious as I thought. <laughs> and we'll end with this. 1 Corinthians 15. I need to see this. Verse 53. We're gonna, well, yeah, let's go down. He's talking about, again, our death and the resurrection. For this corruptible, which is our body, must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. In order to be in heaven, your body has to be in a mortal body because it can't live there. 
For when this corruption is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality, then will be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death, which we all fear, is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades or hell, where is your victory? Because the sting of death... Ever been stung by a bee? You don't want to be around them when you've been stung by them. Right? Oh, I, I, I say, oh, I just can't wait to be stung. It feels so... No. I just, you see a bee and people go, they have varying degrees of fear, but I really don't want to get near that bee because if it stings me, it's going to hurt. Well, there was a, there's a, this is what we fear is the sting of death, the pain of death. What's it going to mean? But he says the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast and move always abounding in the work of the Lord. So what he's saying is this. The reason we fear death is because there's a sting, there's a pain to death. But not to a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've been crucified with Christ. You've died inside of you the only death you're ever going to experience. You died to who you used to be and you're now walking in the spirit of God inside of you. Oh, you'll put this body off. King David had a revelation of this in Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Have you ever been hurt by a shadow? A shadow can't hurt you, can it? It's the image of something, it's an awareness of something, but it has no power because there's no reality to you, to it. It's a reflection of something, a shadow cast by something that's real, but it has no substance to it. In the same way, death's fear has no substance to it. Here's what it's like for a Christian, because he said, this corruption, this body, must be put off so I can put on the new one. And here's what a death for a Christian is like. This is how painful it is. Because I walk into my Savior's arms. Now I don't have to see Him by faith. Now I don't have to pray, Oh Lord, I don't know if You're there. I walk from this life to be absent from the Lord, to, to, to be absent from the body, is to be present. From, why would I fear that? Why would I fear that? Why would I fear that? Because my mind's not been renewed to how much God loves me. The Bible says the death of a saint is precious in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because you're promoted into His presence who longs to see you. Longs to be able to look in your eyes and when you look back you know He loves you. You don't have to do it by faith. You know He loves you. And He can communicate with you without any veil in the way. That's why we don't have to fear death. But we've got to renew our minds to what the Word of God says. And we're going to begin to talk next time. It won't be next week, but we're going to begin to talk next time. All right. If, if, I, if these are all, all these things are done by a revelation of God's love for me, then how do I get that? That's what we're going to begin to look at next time. All this has been to show us that, you know what? We need to not just believe God loves us, but we need to know by experience that God loves us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now for your love and your graciousness and your goodness. 
And Father, help us to have, help us to know that you love us. When you're ready. Help us to know your love for us today. 